Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Paul had languished in a prison for two years during the rule of the Roman governor Felix. Luke understood that Felix was hoping for a bribe, but as Paul apparently refused to offer one, his case didn't progress until a new governor, a man by the name of Festus, was sworn into office. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, if you remember, were quick to try to influence the new governor against Paul. They'd not given up their hope of assassinating him, and so once more they appealed for Paul to be returned to Jerusalem. Festus, suspecting their motives, chose not to send Paul anywhere, but invited the apostles' accusers to Caesarea to plead their case before him there. After several days of litigation with no progress being made, Paul, as a Roman citizen, appealed directly to Caesar to decide his case, thus leaving Festus with no choice but to send him to Rome. The problem was that Festus needed to file formal charges against Paul that would merit the attention of the emperor. He knew that Agrippa possessed a knowledge of the Jewish faith and customs that he himself did not yet have, and so Festus decided to discuss Paul's case with him. When Agrippa was anxious to hear Paul for himself, a day was arranged for Paul to come before the governor, Herod, his wife, and all the high officials of the city so that Paul could present his case. And so we see him given yet another opportunity to preach the gospel. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Notice Paul begins by stating how pleased he is to present his side to someone with such extensive local knowledge, and he immediately commends Herod Agrippa as being well acquainted with all customs and controversies as they relate to the Jewish people. I think that we would do really well to learn from his approach, for Paul didn't take a confrontational stance. As was his custom, he sought to demonstrate respect for and establish a point of personal contact with his listeners in order to open their hearts to the truth about Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 4 to confirm that he was well known to his accusers. The Jews all know the way that I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. 
and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul verifies that he had lived as a Jew from his youth and that though he was born in Tarsus, he'd grown up in Jerusalem among the very people who now accused him. As a Pharisee, he had been part of the strictest group in the Jewish religion and he had faithfully followed their doctrine, which included the resurrection of the dead. As the Pharisees were the teachers of the law and were often synagogue leaders, belief in the promise of the resurrection was widely held by many of those from the twelve tribes of Israel. And yet, Paul revealed it was for this very belief that he now stood accused by the Sanhedrin. He found it astonishing that his opponents struggled to believe that God raises the dead. As a zealous Pharisee, he had been vehemently opposed to the followers of Christ. And he says in verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints the Lord's people, in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul was not afraid to confess that he had once been a fierce opponent of everything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Acting on the chief priest's behalf, he had persecuted Christians, and when faced with a question as to whether or not a believer should be put to death, Paul always cast his vote against them. He went from synagogue to synagogue, even to foreign cities, seeking to force the followers of Jesus to to turn against the Lord and to speak ill of him. He continues in verse 12, On one of those journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Paul began by pointing out that he was sent to Damascus by the chief priests, his very accusers. He was operating on their authority and with their commission to find and arrest believers. Paul declares that around noon a blazing light from heaven, brighter than the sun, fell upon him. The mention of the noon hour here shows just how driven Paul was on his mission. It was customary, you see, for travellers to rest during the midday heat, but not Paul. As he fell to the ground, he heard Jesus speak to him in the language of the Jewish people, asking why Paul was persecuting him by hounding his followers. The Lord then kindly observed that it was hard for Paul to kick against the goads. Goads were pointed sticks used to train an ox to obey its master or to drive a stubborn animal forward. In effect, Christ was asking Paul why he was choosing to learn submission to God the hard way. As a Pharisee, Paul surely thought that he was submitted to God until, to his great surprise, Christ revealed otherwise. He told those present that the Lord himself gave Paul a new commission. He was to be God's servant, a witness of what he had seen of Christ and also of all that Jesus would reveal to him. If you remember, Paul had been blinded in a physical sense, which was symbolic of his spiritual condition. And here, in verses 17 to 18, the apostle gives a very clear summary of what Christ does for people. He opens their eyes. As Jesus takes control of our lives, he enables us to see life in a whole new way. Paul reveals that Jesus turns us from darkness to light. He transfers us from the power of Satan to God. In reality, there are only two spiritual kingdoms in the world. There is the kingdom of God and the realm of Satan. And all of mankind live in one or the other of those spiritual kingdoms. We're either living under the control of Satan or of God. Before accepting Christ as our Lord, we are enslaved by the evil one and under his control, whether we discern that or not. But when we ask Jesus to forgive our sins, he transfers us into his kingdom and sets us apart for God. Because of his blood shed on the cross, our debt has been paid, the penalty for sin has been broken, and we've been born again spiritually as part of God's family. But notice how Jesus specifically told Paul that all of this is only available to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul then explains his response to the heavenly vision. He says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds." 
Paul declares that he began preaching the gospel right where he was, but out of obedience to Christ's command, he eventually traveled to Jerusalem through all Judea and then even on to the Gentiles. The gospel message he preached was always the same, and even to this day it has not changed. Each individual should repent of their sin and turn to God. It's one thing to be sorry for what we've done, but true repentance means that we will change the direction of our lives as well. Though once we were walking away from God, we've now turned towards him in order to have a relationship with him. Paul also preached that a person's deeds will prove their repentance. You see, the proof of genuine repentance and turning to God is seen in the kind of life we lead. Our actions will begin to show that we have indeed been transferred from darkness to light, and that our eyes have been opened and that we now belong to God. We will not continue to live as we once did. Paul wanted his listeners to understand that the message he preached was the real reason for the conflict with his accusers. Verse 21, he says, That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ or the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. God had rescued Paul from his own people and from the Gentiles, and had indeed helped him at that very moment, even bringing him before this dignified audience in order to give evidence to the truth about Jesus Christ the Messiah. Paul wanted them to know that he was not preaching anything different from what the prophets of the Old Testament and even Moses himself had promised, for they had foretold that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be resurrected with an indestructible life, and that he would be a light to both the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Paul delivered a clear message, and yet the Roman governor refused to accept it. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may be these chains. Notice the difference between Paul and those to whom he spoke. It seems very evident that Festus was extremely uncomfortable at the thought of what Paul was saying. Certainly, he wasn't open to the message of repentance and everlasting life, 
for all who would trust in Jesus. And perhaps because he didn't want to respond to Paul's message himself, he interrupted him with the accusation that Paul had gone mad because of his excessive studying. But as Paul pointed out, nothing could be further from the truth. It's important to realize that people often react in a very strong manner against the gospel to give themselves an excuse to continue in their unbelief. Labeling Paul as a crazy man helped Festus silence the guilt of his own conscience. But Paul could not be put off, and I'm sure that he could see that his words were having an effect on King Agrippa. And so he turned to him, saying, The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. Nothing that Christ or the church had done had been hidden. Paul knew that Agrippa was not unaware of the things he spoke of. It was all common knowledge in Judea. Paul also knew that Agrippa was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and so he asked the king directly if he believed what the prophets had said. Because if he did believe them, why then would he not accept Jesus as the Messiah? We can almost feel how uncomfortable Agrippa is at this moment when, trying to dodge the question, he jokes, declaring, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? But Paul is most serious, declaring that no matter how long it took, his greatest prayer was that all who listened to his story would respond to Christ as he had. He wished that they would become just like him, except for his chains. Like many people we encounter, Agrippa must have felt trapped by Paul's call to repent and live a changed life. Perhaps he had a sense that he was more on trial than Paul was, in God's sight anyway. Feeling the weight of the truth and realizing that Paul's testimony seemed to require a response from him, he chose to quickly end the proceedings as a way of escape. We're told, The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They had all heard the good news of Christ Jesus, but they chose not to respond to it. They could have taken the opportunity Paul had given them to repent and place their trust in Jesus, but they did not. And as they leave the room, we realize that despite Paul's chains, he was freer than all of them for they were all still bound in their unbelief, separated from the life God offered them in Christ. The bewildered leaders could not find any real reason why Paul should be tried in Rome or anywhere else for that matter. They believed that Paul had made a terrible mistake by appealing to Caesar, but he had not. Paul knew what Jesus had said to him. 
and that he must go to Rome to testify concerning Christ. And appealing to Caesar actually guaranteed that he would not only get there, but that he would be able to share the gospel even with the emperor himself. And so Paul's journey to Rome finally began. Chapter 27 verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The first thing to notice is the use of we in Acts 27 verse 1. Luke was allowed to travel with Paul along with their friend Aristarchus from Thessalonica. It's most likely that because Luke was a doctor, he'd been allowed to accompany Paul as his personal physician, and that Aristarchus may have gone in the role of Paul's personal assistant. Scholars suggest that in order to be allowed to accompany Paul, loyal Aristarchus likely acted as his slave so as not to be separated from him. As Luke begins his first-hand account of Paul's journey, he confirms that Paul was indeed taken as a prisoner to Rome, and that he and other prisoners were handed over into the protective custody of a centurion by the name of Julius. The fact that Julius was said to be a member of the imperial regiment tells us a lot about him. The soldiers assigned to this regiment, which, by the way, was also known as the Augustan Cohort, were a special group made up of men who not only had excellent military records, but who were known for their bravery and their deep commitment to Caesar and to Rome. This force of men likely acted as the link between the Roman emperor and the governors of the various provinces. Julius was indeed a remarkable man who treated Paul with kindness and respect throughout the voyage, even allowing some of Paul's friends to help him along the way. Luke discloses that the next day we landed at Sidon and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So after stopping briefly in Sidon, their ship hugged the coast in an attempt to escape the strong westerly winds that were beginning to pick up at that time of year. Upon arriving in Myra, the centurion was becoming concerned at their slow progress. He knew that the longer it took them, the worse the weather would get. And because he was anxious to get to Rome as quickly as possible, he decided to change ship in Myra. 
He chose an Egyptian grain ship that was sailing for Italy. These grain ships had the favor of Rome, and so they tended to get through the different ports faster than the other vessels. Julius hoped that would be enough to assure their safe journey to Rome. However, the winds became increasingly difficult even for their faster ship, and taking the direct route to Rome became impossible. Verse 7. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassie. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast, the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. The fast that Luke refers to here is the Jewish Day of Atonement that fell in October. Sailing was not usually possible after September and was truly impossible by November because of the strong westerly winds in the Mediterranean at that time of the year. In those days, ships used the sun and the stars to navigate by, and so in cloudy weather, they had no means of finding their way. Paul was an experienced traveler, but more than that, he was directed by the Holy Spirit, and knowing the difficulties that lay ahead, he advised that they should winter in fair havens where they were. As the senior officer on board, however, the centurion had the last word as to what they should do. In his opinion, Fair Havens was not a very good harbour and the town was too small for the crew to pass the winter in, and so he rejected Paul's counsel. Following the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship, he decided to attempt to sail further along the coast to Phoenix, where there was a more suitable harbour and a bigger town, even though there was real doubt that they would be able to make it. Unfortunately, ignoring the man of God's advice to follow the wisdom of men turned out to be a dangerous decision. But to learn more of what happened, you'll have to join us next time. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.